From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Each year, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst publishes the California Spending Plan that summarizes the annual state budget. How is the state of California going to spend its almost $200 billion budget? We'll ask. Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world, as well as support from Era Energy LLC, Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant, Nossman LLC, Sagasser Watkins and Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Just how does the state spend your taxpayer dollars? Our guest would know. He's Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst and the recognized authority on the state budget. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Nice to be with you again, Mark. So each year, the governor proposes a budget in January. Uh, what did Governor Brown propose for fiscal year uh, 18-19 back uh, last January? Well, the governor's budget does come out in early January that sort of s sets the framework for budget discussions. And we had fairly good revenue growth, but the governor basically was proposing what I like to think of as what we budget folks call a, a workload budget. That is, he wasn't proposing lots of new programs or expanding existing programs. It was like, whatever we were funding, let's continue to fund. You might have cost increases or mm -hmm. you know, caseload growth, but we're just gonna fund what we fund. And so what the governor did with all this new money, he basically put it in reserves. He wanted to increase the reserves, both the required reserves that we can talk about <clears throat> a little bit more that were required under Proposition 2 of 1914 that the voters approved, but also some discretionary reserves. And then whatever money he did spend, it was primarily on one-time He doesn't like getting over his skis, does he? He no, likes he, to kind of be fiscally prudent. He really has taken to the theme that we established many, many years ago that, you know what, we have a very volatile revenue structure. And, and you need to save for that rainy day. So, you know, each May, uh, people might not know this, but each May, after the April tax receipts come in, uh, the governor revises his January budget with something called the May Revision. A lot of people call it the May Revise, and yes. that's grammatically incorrect, but anyway. May Revision is what we <laughs> The May Revision is the correct way to say it. How did the governor's budget change this last May? Well, the, the key development in May, as you say, after we learned about how much personal income tax revenue came in, we had a lot more money. And back in January, we thought we would have more money, and so we tried mm -hmm. to sort of prepare the legislature for that. Turns out we had about $7.5 billion more over the whole budget window. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money, even for a budget as large as ours. Now, some costs went up also. We had some uh, Medi-Cal, which is a health program for low-income people. We had some costs go up there. School spending went up. So that additional revenue was offset by some additional costs, but the governor did propose to increase reserves even more and he also proposed a lot of one-time expenditures, particularly in the capital outlay area. Right. So, so one-time is not—it's not going to be continuing, obviously, year after year after year. Just, just one-time hit. So then you go forward to June, and the governor and the legislature settle on a final budget. Um, how did that differ from the May revision? You know, it was kind of a combination of, of uh, the reserves were a little bit less, more what the governor had proposed in January. There was a little more spending. Uh, the legislature obviously negotiates with the governor. There was more money, for example, for universities. There was more money put in for homelessness. Um, but I would say the overall framework was pretty much what the governor laid out. We're going to put a lot of money aside for reserves. And when we do spend money, it's going to be primarily for one-time things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when you take a look at a budget, I've, I've always thought, I've 
disagree with me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of your, it's the objective manifestation of policy, right? Isn't that what a budget is? It's setting your priorities. Right. I mean, and that's in, in a very tangible way. And year to year, the whole reason you have an annual budget, the same way that you reevaluate your own personal budget mm -hmm. is, well, what do we want to do now? What is of higher priority? What is of lower priority? And it, it seems pretty clear to the governor, uh, to Governor Brown, at least in his last budget, what higher education was a priority, setting aside money for reserve Well, and for the legislature. They actually and legislature, of course. money, too. Yes, of course. Uh, and so that's that give and take between the two branches. But, but clearly, preparing for the next uh, recession, in effect, was one of the governor's highest priorities. He, he keeps talking about that. I mean, and if you look at it, and, and if you look at historically, we've been in a pretty good economic growth pattern for a while now, and it's like, it seems like we're due. I'm not asking you for a prediction, but it just, it seems like, wow, this has been going on for a while. You know, we started uh, turning around. I think the recession technically ended in uh, 2009. So we're coming on a decade of growth. It's one of the longest recovery periods in our, you know, modern history. Yeah, that makes people a little nervous. So it, the overall spending picture for the state of California, excluding federal funds and bond funds, how would you describe it? I mean, how much has spending increased generally and how much specifically for the general fund and for the, the special funds? Yeah, there's the two types that you just mentioned. The general mm -hmm. fund is what you would think as your main operating account. Mm -hmm. your, your main checking account is where okay. we put most of our money in. And it can be spent for any reason, any purpose at all. Right. But then we have what these that are called, and it's a smaller part of our budget. It's probably 40% of what our general fund budget is, special funds. And you just think of those as money that's paid, but it's usually spent and dedicated towards a particular purpose. Right. If you are a contractor or have a, a license. Well, <laughs> I don't want to go to the lockbox, but think of it if you, were a, a, you had to be a, a, have a license to, uh, to, uh, for your occupation. Right. right. You would pay a fee. Right. And it would go for that purpose of regulating your profession. Right. Okay. So, um, and so there's some money there in, in the special funds as well as the general funds. Um, the general fund grew relatively rapidly. Yeah. I think I was reading, was it 9%? 9%, which is a big year to year, uh, year yeah. over year increase. Special funds did not grow that much, about 2%. Okay. Well, up next, um, how did the state decide to spend your money? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking about how taxpayer dollars are being spent by the state with Mac Taylor, California's nonpartisan legislative analyst. So we're talking about uh, the state's budgets, about $200 billion total budget. Uh, of that, the legislature has about $10 billion in what's called discretionary general fund money after uh, they fund existing programs. Can you explain that whole that discrepancy? Sure, and it might be better to compare that $10 billion against the general fund's total budget of about $140 billion. Okay. So, so what does that mean? And it goes back to this notion we were just talking about on a workload budget. Like you say, if you sort of fund what you've been doing, do you have monies left over for other priorities? It could be reducing taxes, increasing spending, building up reserves. And given all the new money that came, particularly in May, we estimated that, we you know, the legislature and the governor had about $10 billion in what we call discretionary, that is... Money to play with. Kind of money to play <laughs> with. But again, that could be for right. reserves or reducing right. tax, whatever you right. want to do with it. And uh, so that was the amount that we tried to characterize, well, sort of what happened with that money. Right. Yeah. It's interesting, and you were saying, you know, discretionary, this discretionary money excludes dollars controlled by constitutional funding requirements like Prop 98. Prop exactly. 98 is a big cut of the budget. It's 40% of the budget, and it has its own formulas, and so whatever those formulas would dictate, if it grows by 2 or 3% or whatever, that's part of the workload budget, and then right. you have money above that, you could add to this educational spending or, or I, I other purposes. Could, if, for, for, for a layperson, I can kind of look at, okay, I pay a mortgage on a house. I know if I'm projecting next year's budget, I know I'm going to be spending this much money on my mortgage. But I, I have got a raise, so where can I spend the additional money? And it might be that your mortgage was a variable rate. 
Okay. So your existing program wouldn't be what you were paying this year. It was, you're going to have to pay next year under that variable rate. Right. But it's still the same program. Right. So, so we would try to look above that and say, okay, well, after you pay for your higher interest rate on your variable, what do you have left over for other priorities of your family? Okay. So let's talk about um, that for a second. How did the governor of the legislature allocate that $10 billion Again, specifically? The number one reason, almost half of those monies went for additional reserves. Rainy day. Well, isn't that just the rainy day fund, but just no. it's putting money aside. Yeah, these are additional monies yeah. on top of that that they wanted to set aside um, just to make available for the legislature and the, and the governor to be able to use. They're putting a lot of money aside. They are setting aside a lot of money. But remember, you have to think about the state's revenue structure. It is very volatile. It can swing tens of billions of dollars from a good year growth to, to going uh, below and, what and, you're And based. explain for our audience why, is it, why is it so volatile. It's volatile for a variety of reasons, but basically because we rely on the personal income tax, and much of the personal income tax is paid by 1% of taxpayers. Okay, so, so it's very progressive. It's, it's, so capital gains? And capital gains and other forms of volatile income like business income, stock option, bonuses. When the stock market is doing well, California we do really well. doing fantastic. Of course, the reverse is also true. And that's the problem. That's why Governor Brown in particular has kept talking about what, how fast you can lose money if you turn into a recession. So let's talk about revenues for a minute. Um, what are the projections uh, for the state for 2018-19? And how much uh, has the general fund tax has actually increased? You know, they're projected to increase in this current year by about 4% on the big three taxes. And those big three are personal income, sales tax, and corporate tax. But the general fund we talked earlier was increasing at 9%. The spending was. We actually okay. spent down on some of our discretionary reserves year over year. It's a little counterintuitive because okay. we're building up these other revenues. Okay. But, so revenue growth was, was pretty good in 1819. It was especially good in 1718. So we're coming off a very big year. Um, but so the, the growth was, was not, you know, particularly rapid. But, uh, and we actually felt like the administration was probably underestimating revenues for the year. Yeah, he, that's actually a trick that he's used more than once. Well, I wouldn't call it, <laughs> oh, okay, I I wouldn't call it a trick. trick. It's, it's, a, it's, it's being cautious. Cautious, right. It's, it's an approach. Uh -huh. But I think a, as a result of that approach, which is a perfectly justifiable thing if you're, you want to be careful that you don't overcommit, but it has meant that we've tended to raise our estimates of revenues once well, they finally came But out. one of the caveats with, with setting us out of reserve is that money's not, quote-unquote, being used mm -hmm. um, for, for services, goods and services. So that's the quid pro quo. It's not like you're... It's like free money that you just put aside. Right, it means right. it's not available for other things. Right. So, um, so I want to ask you about uh, the final budget packet assumes in 1819 we'll end up with a $16 billion reserve. Um, all this money isn't in just one rainy day account. It's actually in several accounts. Can you explain a little bit about the different accounts? How much is in each? What are the limitations? Sure. I think that's a really important question. Uh, let me focus on two that really have most of our reserves. The first one is uh, based on Proposition 2 of 1914 when we set up this rainy day fund. And it's very important because this is uh, guided by constitutional rules. How much money goes in each year based on how much capital gains we have, what total revenues are, and the constitutional rules guide how you can take money out of it. So the legislature doesn't have a lot of control over right. that. Right. Okay. And that has most of the reserves. Of the $16 billion you mentioned, almost $14 billion is in this so-called rainy day. Is that, is that, I want to say, is that 10% of the it, general fund? When people passed Proposition 2, it had a 10% sort of, it's not a cap as much as it's a target level, but what happens once you hit 10%, 
monies are used for a, for a different reason. The other reserve is just what we call the free reserve. It would just be like your checking account balance mm -hmm. that's available for you to do whatever you want. And it is guided by statute. Legislature can do whatever it wants with that. But a lot less. A, a lot, lot less, less money, right now. Right, right now. now, okay. Well, this year's budget generally focused on one-time spending and building more reserves. Uh, the money uh, was spent on a variety of other issues. We're going to talk about those in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with California's legislative analyst, Mac Taylor, about uh, the 2018-19 uh, state spending plan. Education, we talked about it earlier, lion's share of the budget, 60, uh, I'm sorry, 40% 40, 40 of the budget. Um, and you said that there's considerable uh, new spending in virtually every education segment uh, from early childhood through college. So early education, um, how did it do under the budget? Early education, which uh, consists of both child care programs and preschool, which has a more, obviously more mm. educational aspect to it, uh, did extremely well. They had about a 16% increase wow. in their spending year over year. And there was basically two components of that. We provided a lot more slots, that is, places for kids mm -hmm. uh, throughout the state. And we also increased reimbursement rates that we pay to providers uh, and with the thought that, you know, that will encourage uh, more supply. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, you know, the pre-K stuff has been going on. There's been discussions about this for a long time. The, the former um, Senate Pro Tem, Daryl Steinberg, I believe, was was a proponent of, of pre-K. You know, they want to have universal pre-K. That's another issue, um, but that's a pretty big ticket item. Um, that, that would cost a lot more money because we're right. not serving all the people who are eligible. Right. Um, but, but, but on a year-to-year -year basis, this was a substantial increase. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that they increased the number of slots, but they also increased, re, uh, increased the uh, reimbursement rates because if you have the slots, but you don't have anybody willing to do the job, then it's like you don't have the slots, exactly. right? So you've got to do the, the reimbursement rates. So what about uh, K-12 education? K-12 education, um, also, which as we said, is the biggest single piece of the budget. And they got a rather large year-to-year -year increase in discretionary money. They've been doing well for years. Now. They, I mean, they've been doing very well for because we had to sort of make up right. from when we had reduced spending during the Great Recession. And they've been getting a big chunk of revenue increases. Uh, so they have been doing very well. And I would say 1819 was another very good year. Uh, they had about $5.8 billion increase of effectively over what had been committed in 1718. Uh, most of this was for ongoing. Right. Almost all of the money went into our basic funding formula, that just money that's distributed, uh, distributed to schools. That's the local control funding formula. Exactly. Which kind of gives the locals the ability to decide how they're going to spend that money, which I'm sure they really like. Yes, and we had set targets, the funding that we wanted to reach by some in the out years, and we've mm -hmm. reached it early. We mm -hmm. have fully funded that uh, local control funding format targets that we'd set three or four years ago. So most of the money just went to that. And then there was a big chunk of spending that was for one time, of a variety of one-time things, with the biggest piece being, again, these what we call discretionary grants to locals. They could use it for any one-time purpose that they wanted. There, there's a lot of focus, and, and it seems like to me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, the way the budget is going by the legislature and the governor toward um, low-performing schools and students, uh, people that are a little bit more educationally challenged to try to raise those those numbers, those levels. The whole local control funding formula is geared towards giving considerably more money uh, for students who are either low-income low or English learners. And the argument would be that, that they probably need more help, more assistance in kind of uh, getting getting their academic achievement up and closing that ac academic achievement gap, which is Which is considerable. And right. and that was the theory behind the, the whole formula. Well, we got community, what about community colleges? Um, you know, and the other things like career technical education, online community colleges, what's, what's happening there? 
Uh, community colleges who've also been doing very well, mm -hmm. again, as this funding formula, Proposition 98, yeah. has required large increases in recent years. And in 1819, they also got a, like a $1.2 billion increase. Because they're part increase. of, it's interesting, it's, they're part of Prop 90. People forget that community colleges are part of that calculation. They take about uh, just over a tenth of the total Prop 98, but they are part of that calculation. And the whole Prop 98, which is K-12 and community colleges, is about 40% of our whole number. budget. If you add in the universities, that's where you get to almost half the budget is for education. Right, so we're talking, we talk about that, so I think I, I, I may have cut you off in terms of online community colleges, there's money for that. There's something that Governor Brown has been pushing. Yes, there's a lot of one-time things again. Uh, there was also about 800 of that 1.2 billion was just generally going money out for per student increases. Right. So again, uh, community college district just had a lot more discretion over having more money to spend in whatever way they thought was appropriate to serve their local community. And then there's higher education, the UC and the CSUs. Right, uh, and they did fairly well. Uh, general fund support for the uh, CSU system increased by nine and a half percent. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a little bit overstated for a couple of reasons. Some of that money was only for on a one-time basis. Okay. And there are generally no tuition increases. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a, there's a hook there. You can have the money, but... Well, and then you have to think, well, tuition supports a pretty big a part of their core program. Right. And if you're not allowing that funding source to increase, you've got you to make it up almost on the other part. So that 9.5 after you adjust for, th for those two things isn't anywhere near as gr great as it might seem. Yeah, one, one last thing I want to ask you in this segment, that is about health care and mental health. How does they do with, in the state budget? Um, they did, there were some interesting developments in that. For example, in health care, uh, because of the tax increases on cigarettes that the voters recently mm -hmm. approved, there was a large chunk of money, over $820 million, that went to the Medi-Cal program for basically for rate increases for providers of Again, healthcare. with the rate increases, yeah, because you want people to actually provide Have the service. Have access. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, more with Mac Taylor in a moment about the state spending plan. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. I'm talking with Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, about the 2018-19 state spending plan. Um, homelessness, big issue. Um, housing, big issue because of the sky-high housing prices and uh, rents and whatnot. Uh, no one expects that the uh, state's going to be able to fix the housing issue by state spending alone. Um, however, uh, there is a considerable amount of state spending to address this issue. Um, what is, what's happening with the state budget when it comes to homelessness and housing issues? Yeah, I mean, I think your point is a good one, that most housing is provided by the private sector, and, and there's not a problem, in, or not, not huge problems necessarily, in providing homes for, for many types of people. What is more difficult is housing for certain, uh, certain groups, and I think the homeless is one where the legislature has been particularly concerned. So they dedicated, on a one-time basis, $500 million dollars which is a, it's a good chunk of money, right. and these are grants to local governments. You know, I wanted to ask you that, because I thought about when I was reading that in your report, I'm thinking, is that RDA 2.0? You used to have something called redevelopment agencies no. that would give money to local governments and they could spend it? No, this is really just money going to, to uh, local governments that could spend for a variety of homelessness-related uh, okay. projects. Okay. So they, I, I was reading too much into that. Yes, I think so. Okay, which happens. Um, that's why you're here to correct me. All right, so there's the issue of, related issue of poverty. Um, according to the Public Policy Institute of California, four out of ten Californians live near or below poverty levels. And if you took away the state safety net, like things like CalFresh, CalWORKs, uh, earned income tax credits, uh, this it would result in about half of all Californians uh, being at or near the poverty level. So how is poverty addressed in the state budget? You know, I think the legislature has been very concerned about this now for several years, and they took a variety of steps. Uh, two of the bigger ones uh, where they increased cash assistance payments to people for, you know, temporary assistance 
-hmm. That's called the CalWORKs program in, in California. Uh, they also um, they, they did something for poor and disabled seniors. Uh, and it's called a cash out program, but basically it made them eligible for food benefits, what okay. we used to call food stamps. Just before they couldn't get it. Uh, they couldn't get it because they had this little $10 cash out, but they'll be eligible for a lot more benefits. Most people, most of the uh, seniors and disabled would be eligible for a lot more total benefits uh, with this action that the legislature took. And there's the earned income tax credit, which is a way to kind of encourage people to work if they're lower income. Very low income people. We expanded right. that. We have a, there's a federal uh, earned income tax credit. The state adopted one several years ago. They expanded it to include more people. So I would say a variety, including the homelessness grants that we right. just talked about, a lot of different a variety of steps to, to try to address some of these issues. And helping the, the elderly, the disabled, uh, et, et cetera. Let me ask you this. Um, there's also another $1.5 in there for various infrastructure projects. What exactly uh, are they putting money up for? Again, this are these one-time things right. that the governor liked. If we're going to spend one-time things, we're higher on his right. priority list. Uh, most of it is in capital outlay, infrastructure. And there was a big project that was part of this. Why wasn't there? <laughs> there is one big project. It's on. Because I heard it. I heard it in, in campaign ads. They're spending all this money for a nice place for themselves. And what are they talking about there? It's called the Capital Annex. It's the building in back of the the old traditional Capitol that houses all of the members and much of their staff. Mm -hmm. The building is fairly dilapidated mm -hmm. and something had to be done. And so they finally took action to dedicate some monies to start the planning process to build a new capital annex. And I think their hope is it'll be a much friendlier building, not only for the people who use it, but for people who visit the yeah, capital. I, I guess there was $630 million for the capital annex. Um, and if, if you've been to the Capitol, you kind of know, you do notice going from one building to the other that there yeah. is a, definitely a difference. But that building, I guess, was built in 1952, and they felt, you know, maybe we ought to do a little upgrading. It's a tough one, obviously, for members to take on, but uh, hopefully we'll have a building in four or five years that will be much better for the public also. Right. Okay. So any other major features uh, in the budget package? Oh, sure. I mean, there's just a whole variety of, uh, of other actions. For example, during the process, they put on the ballot... Proposition 2 of this year, which voters just recently right. voted on, and that allowed the mental health monies, the so-called millionaire tax proceeds that is dedicated towards mental health, it allowed the, uh, the state to issue bonds to build housing for the mentally ill homeless, right. uh, particularly veterans. A, a very rough estimate, but usually when you look at those bonds in, in, in the propositions, you should generally basically double it for what it's actually going to cost you over the period of because the Because of interest. Because of interest. So it's like putting it on your credit card. Yeah. In some ways, I guess that's the best way to kind of well, think except, about that. Well, except, fortunately for the state, because the feds exempt uh, that the, the tax, uh, the, uh, the income that you earn on bonds, mm -hmm. it's actually a fairly low rate. So the state borrows at a fairly, fairly okay. good rate. Okay, we only got about 30 seconds left, but I did want to ask you about some of the other interesting nuggets you might have found in the state budget. Um, anything come to mind that kind of grabbed your attention? Well, I think there's, um, there are a lot of little things that, right. uh, you know, right. we had money for for electric uh, uh, Valley stations. Valley fever research. Uh, thing, um, exactly. EV charging stations. The charging stations, whatever. Uh, the earthquake early warning system. We also had some, some fairly substantial policy proposals. They adopted a new way of allocating money for community colleges that I think will have to be worked out over the coming years. Um, so there were some, some large policy proposals so as well. You've got to drill down. It's funny that, you know, say it's, it's budget to us, two or three million dollars here or there, but there's a lot of things in that budget, and it does tell you a lot about the priorities. I want to thank Mac Taylor, California's legislative analyst, for being with us. If you want to stay current with state and local politics, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at mattyinstitute.com. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. 
when it comes to politics, there's a helpful saying. Ignore the words, follow the money. Like other states, every year the California governor and legislature negotiate a new budget. The end result reflects their true values and priorities. For Californians who pay taxes, however, the state budget process is a mystery. Our guest, Scott Graves from the California Budget and Policy Center, will tell you how the state budget is put together and how your tax dollars are spent. Following the Money, a primer on the California budget process. Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. We've all heard the saying that actions are more important than words. That's particularly true in government. If you really want to know a politician's real priorities, you need to look no farther than the budget they're proposing. But budgets can be difficult for the average voter to understand. We're fortunate to have an expert, Scott Graves, who's the Director of Research for the California Budget and Policy Center, here to help explain the California budget process. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thank you. I will do my best. Okay. <laughs> well, first, can you explain where the money comes from to pay for the California state budget? Well, ultimately, the money comes from California's taxpayers, either through the state personal income tax, state sales taxes, when we all go to the store and buy something that's taxed, we're contributing to the state budget, and also those of us who are paying federal taxes, a lot of that money is coming back to California. So that money all flows back into the state budget and is accounted for in a couple ways. We have federal funds in our state budget that makes up about one-third of the budget. Mm -hmm. That's just over $100 billion uh, in the coming year. And then state funds make up about two-thirds of the state budget. That's around $180 billion. The largest state fund is called our general fund. Not a very exciting name for a fund, um, but it's, that's sort of the fund out of which our legislators and governor um, can apportion dollars for any purpose allowed by law. There are no strings attached to those general fund dollars, and that's the biggest portion of state spending. It's interesting, you know, you're saying about $300 billion total-ish, um, the 287. Um, and people throw around million dollars like it's budget dust in Sacramento. Yeah. It's not that big a deal, right? Yeah. When you look at a billion-dollar yeah. budget, it isn't that big a deal. Right. Until you get up to a billion or more, that, that's when you're talking real money. Okay. Um, yeah, it's, it's always an interesting concept. So you stated that the state budget is a local budget. How so? I think a lot of people think that because the budget is crafted in Sacramento, that all of the dollars remain in Sacramento. But the reality is the state budget uh, sends money out across California every year, and very few of those dollars actually remain in Sacramento. So that's why when we're talking about the state budget, it's important to think of it as not being just some state-level thing, but it's actually um, providing a lot of services that are flowing out at the local level. You know, it, it, but sometimes you think when you think about that, it's kind of passed through the, that the state really has with the budget and with revenue. It's it's almost like he who has the gold makes the rule. So sometimes the state can put strings attached to the local governments. Uh, I suppose, you know, there's a lot of public services supported by the state, um, state budget. Can you talk about a few of those? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one that a lot of people are surprised by is K-12 public education. I think a lot of Californians think that most money for their public schools comes from their local property taxes, and property taxes do play a big role in public education, but most of the money that public schools are spending every year is coming from our state budget, so that's one big piece of it. Um, higher education also gets a lot of money from the state budget. The community colleges, the California State University, there are 23 campuses around the state, the 10 University of California campuses. We have a Medi-Cal health coverage program. That's for very big. Very big. That's a $100 billion program in California, federal and state money. 
We've got a lot of services that help families in need, including um, at-risk uh, children through the foster care and child welfare services programs. And of course, we have a lot of public safety expenditures at the state level. Right. We have 34 state prisons scattered around California. We spend more than 10 billion general fund dollars per year on our correction system. So that's another big uh, piece yeah, of spending. It's interesting you say corrections. A lot of people assume, if you ask them, you know, what does the state spend the money on? A lot of people, I think, will say corrections and crime, but that's actually, it's big, but it's, it's kind of the, it's not one of the biggest expenditures. Right. The biggest expenditure in the state budget, just speaking about the general fund, is K-12 education. If you look at uh, correction spending at the state level. Um, it's been dropping in recent years because of the state's efforts to reduce incarceration. Still around 8 to 9 percent of our general fund budget is going into our prison and parole system. Mm. But that's still, that's smaller than what we spend on higher education as a share of the budget and much smaller than what we spend on K-12. Yeah, I think the number that's on K-12 is about 40 percent on K-12 in community college and then another 10 percent or so for higher education. So if you just compare prisons, you know, incarceration, about 8 or 9 percent compared to, let's say, K-12, which is like 40 percent, I mean, we're talking, you know, five times as much for education. I think people would be surprised by that. Right. Um, you know, it's interesting, the state budget is actually a bill. Um, a, you described it, though, as, quote, a bill of a different kind. What did you mean by that? So a lot of people are familiar with the policy process in the legislature where you have a bill and it gets introduced in one house and it moves through various committees, goes to the floor, then it goes to the next house. Uh, the budget bill is not like that. It is a bill, and here's an example of a recent budget bill. It's Light over, reading. It's over 700 pages long with thousands and thousands of numbers in it. Um, but it's, it's different from uh, your standard bill for you know a couple of reasons. One is that um, it is moving through budget committees in the legislature, not through policy committees. Okay. Um, it's generally moving with other bills as part of a package. It's never alone. It's never flying solo. It's always got 20, 30, or 40 bills attached to it that help to like Barnacles on a ship. Just yeah, right. There, there they are. You can't, you can't have a budget bill without the, the, the what they're called trailer bills or okay. budget-related bills. Um, and also the bill is different, not only because it's so long, but because it covers everything that state government does. It funds an array of programs and services uh, for a single fiscal year. Wow. So thanks for that overview of the state budget. Yeah. Up next, we're going to talk about the what, who, and when of the state budget. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute, and I'm talking with Scott Graves, the Director of Research for the Nonpartisan California Budget and Policy Center. So the California budget seems to have a language all its own. It's like a foreign language. Um, and there's some key terms, though, that most people should know. So let's go through a few key terms. Sure. One is the governor's proposed budget. What's that? So the proposed budget is the spending plan that the governor unveils or releases every January after a several months long process within his administration to figure out what he wants his budget to look like. So these are very big documents. This is not for the faint of heart. Here's an older version from the Gray Davis administration. It's as big as a big city telephone book, uh, hundreds of pages long with a lot of um, uh, very almost unintelligible jargon in many places and filled with numbers. So this is where you go if you want to know you're interested in a particular department or agency spending. You want to know how much they spent last year, how much they're estimated to spend in the current year, and how much the governor is proposing to spend 
in the next fiscal year. Put the green eye shades on. Uh, yes. Okay, so then we've got the governor's uh, budget summary. What's that? Okay, here's another somewhat older version of that. Um, the summary, Seems a little smaller. It's smaller. This is the narrative that accompanies the big budget. So this is more text and fewer numbers. This is where you go if you want to have a better understanding of the governor's revenue outlook. Does he think revenues are going to be up or down for the next fiscal Explains year? Explains the numbers. Right. His economic outlook. Does he have any major policy initiatives that he wants the legislature to pass? So that's where you would go to find all of those things, plus the governor's rationale for his budget. This is the governor's view of the world. Okay. Uh, then we've got the May revise or okay. the May revision. A revise right. probably not grammatically correct, right. uh, but that's what people call it. What is that? So the May revision is the governor's second bite at the apple. Essentially, he unveils his budget proposal in January. A few months go by. Legislators look at it, and then after we know what personal income taxes look like in California in April. The governor then tax released day. tax day. We all pay our taxes in right. April, um, or, you know, I hope we do. Um, <laughs> then you, the governor takes a look at that and says, okay, revenues are better than I thought they'd be. Revenues are worse than I thought they'd be. A lot of things have changed in the last few months. He revises his budget proposal and releases it by May 14th, and then legislators take a look at that. Okay, and then you've got budget bills and you've got trailer bills. Can you talk about those for a second? So the budget bill, um, this is the several hundred uh, pages long document that gets introduced every year. And there can be more than one budget bill. A lot of people think there's only one budget bill. Often there's more than one because they make changes to it throughout the year. But the budget bill essentially contains thousands of appropriations that tell agencies, boards, commissions, universities that they can spend a certain amount of money from a certain fund um, for a certain amount of time for a specific purpose. And I'm guessing, like, mm -hmm. if you're in the UC, you're going to be focusing specifically on the section on the University yeah. of California. You want us to be able to I'm see... not going to read the whole thing. Right, what the governor is proposing in your area, exactly. Right. So the trailer bills, these are the bills that accompany the budget bill, because the budget bill doesn't tell you much beyond the numbers, how much can be spent. The, the trailer bills, or budget-related bills, such as this one, for example, they can be bigger or smaller mm -hmm. than this, um, they sort of explain how state law is going to have to change in order to implement the policies and spending assumed in the budget Are those bill. the barnacles on the ship we were talking barnacles about? Barnacles on the ship. You might have, okay. in years past, maybe 20 years ago, there would have been 10 of these accompanying the budget bill. Um, during the Great Recession, when we had the big um, deficits in California a few years ago, there were 40 or 50 of these trailer bills. In the recent years, it's been more on the range of maybe 25 or 30. So there's a lot, there are a lot of bills that move along with the budget bill through the process. Then we've got some key players in the process. So quickly, you know, Department of Finance. Department of Finance uh, is the governor's chief fiscal policy advisor. They prepare all of the governor's budget-related documents. Um, this is going on in any given year from July through June, basically oh. the whole year. Okay, They're then always at work. Then you've got the Assembly Committees and the Senate Committees. Yes. So the Budget Committees and the Legislature review the Governor's proposals and they craft their own version of the budget before they go into final negotiations with the Governor. Okay, and then we got the Legislative Analyst Office. The LAO, um, they are the advisors to the Legislature. They essentially work for state lawmakers and not for the Governor. Um, they look at the governor's budget, they advise the legislature on it, and they um, put out publications. Let's talk about the timeline for the state budget. Uh, it, it's, it's ongoing. This thing is, you know, right. 12 months a year, but let's start at January. Um, okay. Kind of walk us through the, the timeline for the state budget from January. Okay, you made a key point there. Before, Jan before you get to January, there's a lot that goes on. So it's really important for Californians to understand that it is a cyclical process. There's always someone in Sacramento thinking about the state budget. If it were a sport, 
there would be no off-season. So there's always okay. uh, some aspect of the budget process going on. January, the big event is the governor releases his proposed budget for the upcoming fiscal year. That must be a balanced budget, meaning he has to show that revenues equal or exceed the spending that he is proposing. That has to be done by January 10th. Okay. So he's projecting that, and then it goes to the Legislative Committee hearings uh, sometime in the spring. Right. March, April, early May, the legislature, uh, both the Assembly and the Senate, will hold dozens of hearings digging into the details of the governor's proposals. Okay. And then we've got May 14th is the governor's May revise. Right. May 14th, uh, that's the date when the governor puts out his updated budget proposal, taking into account how the world has changed in the previous four months. And then there's legislative committees, you know, working in the Senate and the Assembly and during June. Then we've got June 15th is the next big deadline. June 15th, that's another constitutional deadline. The legislature is required to pass the budget bill. No other bills, just the budget bill by midnight on June 15th. If they miss that deadline, they lose their pay and their reimbursement for travel and living expenses well, that, for every day they're late. That'll get their it, attention. It's and, an incentive, and they have, since that rule went into effect uh, seven years ago, they've never missed the yeah, deadline. Not too many, I'm guessing, yeah. not too many late yeah. budgets. And then we got July 1 start of the fiscal year. So we have a 12-month fiscal year. It runs July 1st through June 30th. Okay, well, thank you very much for talking about sure. the who, what, when, where, and why about the state budget process. Up next, we're going to talk about the state constitution and how it sets some kind of key rules of the road when it comes to the California state budget process. What are they? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Um, we're talking with Scott Graves, the Director of Research for the Nonpartisan California Budget and Policy Center. Now, the California Constitution sets some important rules regarding the budget process. What are they? So uh, one thing the California Constitution does is it talks about tax increases, and it requires a supermajority or a two-thirds vote. What are some of the taxes that, that require this two-thirds vote? What are Any, we talking about? Yes. Um, Back in 2010, the voters passed an initiative that requires that any tax that any taxpayer who will be asked to pay a higher tax that requires a two-thirds vote of the legislature. Well, any is a loaded so, term. That, that's a, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you could you could imagine a situation where uh, legislators want to cut taxes for 35 million people and raise taxes on five people. That bill would require a two-thirds vote because five people would be paying a higher tax. Wow! Really? So they really tightened up the rules um, through Proposition 26 back in 2010. Now you're hearing that a lot now with cap and trade. I mean, cap and trade when they first proposed it, they said, "Oh, this isn't a tax. This is to deal with greenhouse gas emissions." But there's a, there's currently a litigation asking whether or not the cap and trade charge is a tax. And if it does, it needs a two-thirds uh, support of the legislature. So the governor now is working on that to try to get the legislature to, to reauthorize that. Right. Um, so that goes to the question of what is a tax and what is a fee. Right. The other thing that Prop 26 did is it expanded the definition of a tax. So many um, increases that used to be considered fees and the legislature could pass by a majority vote they now require a two-thirds supermajority vote. So yeah. that's so it's kind raising of, that issue. If it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a tax. Just because you call it a fee. It's well, they've got very clearly defined rules now. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, in the past, the, the budget bill uh, needed a two-thirds majority to pass. In 2010, you talked about this Prop 25, which allowed budget bills and trailer bills to pass on a simple majority vote. Um, but what if you got tax, a tax uh, package, a, a bill, a trailer bill or something that's part of the budget package? Does that need a two-thirds vote? Yes. So any bill that's included in the budget package that otherwise requires a two-thirds vote still needs a two-thirds vote. So you can't vote. get around it. No. So if okay. you want to raise taxes, you need a two-thirds vote, even if you're doing it to balance um, the budget. 
Um, if you want to put a constitutional amendment before the voters, you still need a two-thirds vote because the Constitution says so. You can't say, well, it's part of the budget, so it should pass by majority vote. No, okay. you need the supermajority. Okay. Thanks for that clarification. Yeah. Okay, so then 2016, uh, the voters approved Prop 54. Um, and that, that said that bills have to be published at least 72 hours before the legislature takes any action. Mm -hmm. So since the state budget is a bill, how does the 72-hour rule impact the budget process? That 72-hour rule uh, applies to every bill, including the budget bill and budget-related bills, known as trailer bills. So what this essentially means is um, the deadline for the legislature to pass the budget bill without being penalized is June 15th, midnight. That means if they have to have, to have the budget bill in print for three days or 72 hours, they really have to have the budget done by June 12th. So one thing that has happened is there's already a compressed timeline between when the governor releases his May revision in mid-May and when they have to get the budget done. Now uh, Prop 54 has made that timeline a little bit shorter by backing up the date by which the legislature has to have a bill. So ready. it's really compressed time. I mean, yeah. I assume the legislature then is working some long hours. Yeah, it's all, there's a lot of negotiations that go on between mid-May and early June. Um, that's when the rubber really hits the road, and it's also when the process moves very quickly, and it gets harder for the public, um, you know, Joe Q public, to um, see the process, what's going on, and to influence the process. So we've got a lot of legislatures and probably news reporters are putting in some pretty long nights during that compressed period between the May revise and when the budget has to be done. That's right. And now the real deadline is going to be June 12th, not June 15th. No wonder I can't get anybody on the phone during that time. <laughs> I think you just gave me the answer. I just want to go over one last thing because we talked about it earlier, and that was the penalties if a budget is late uh, under uh, Prop 25. What, what were the penalties again? So if the legislature has not passed and sent to the governor the budget bill, just sent to the governor, he can veto it, he can do anything he wants with it. If they miss the June 15th deadline, every day that they're late, they forfeit their pay and the additional uh, money that they get to pay that, for travel per diem. per diem, the travel and living expenses. So they would forfeit that money. Um, since that rule went into effect in 2010, um, they have never missed the deadline. So there have been various reasons why we've had on-time budgets since Governor Brown came back into the governor's office, but you know, probably a small role is played by the fact that um, if the legislature actually misses its deadline, they'll have to pay a financial penalty. Yeah, and it gets their attention for sure. Well, thank you for providing that overview <laughs> of some of the important rules of the budget process. Up next, you know, the people of California do have a direct say in the state budget process through the initiative and proposition process. It's called ballot box budgeting. And what impact does it have on the state budget? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Scott Graves, the Director of Research for the Nonpartisan California Budget and Policy Center. As we've discussed, the governor and the legislature craft the state's annual spending plan according to rules outlined by the state constitution. California voters, however, have periodically reviewed and revised the state constitution, and that, that's had a profound effect on how the state budget process occurs. A great example of that is Prop 98, which was passed in 1998 and sets a, a guaranteed level of funding for K-12 schools and community colleges. So I'm guessing it's, I know it's pretty complicated from what I've read, but what is that, how is the minimum guarantee for education calculated and can it be changed or modified? So it is a, a very complicated formula that is used every year to figure out um, how much of the general fund will go toward K-12 schools and community colleges, which are also in the formula. There are three tests that apply under different economic and fiscal circumstances. So, you know, we're it's not going really to get It's really complicated. The number of people who actually understand it could fit around this table right now. I think one um, of the people who designed it actually said he sent his kids to Stanford based on his knowledge and what he was able to, you know, 
sell that for basically to other people right. um, because it's just so complicated. It is complicated, but um, it is a key piece of the budget process every year because until legislators and the governor have a, a good handle on how much the state is going to owe for Prop 98 to K-14 education, they don't really have a sense of how much of uh, the state budget is left for other programs yeah, and services. There's another yeah. one, Prop 2, the Rainy Day Fund, which was approved by voters in 2014. Right. What impact on the state budget does that have? So that has uh, put in um, a fairly rigid formula that does require the state to set aside um, what amounts to billions of dollars every year into a rainy day fund uh, to save for the next recession mm -hmm. when things start to go downhill again, right. um, and also to pay off some of our budgetary debt, which includes unfunded pension liabilities. Right. So uh, that, that is a new thing that the voters put in effect, a new priority that they wanted to see. Yeah, it's interesting, and they're talking about, you know, about $10 billion in all the reserves to state government, but when you look back at the recession, the Great Recession, the, the state was running $20 billion deficit. So $10 billion sounds like a lot as a reserve, but... You know, based on recent history, maybe not enough. Um, okay, so 2016, Prop 55 uh, was passed. It's kind of a continuation of attacks on wealthy Californians. What impact on the budget process? So that will leave in place for another 12 years through 2030. Uh, the personal income tax rate increases on the highest income Californians. It does allow uh, the sales tax rate increase that was part of the original initiative that put these uh, tax increases in place back in 2012, that sales tax increase has expired. Um, what Prop 55 does that's different, though, is that it requires, uh, during certain years and under certain circumstances, some general fund dollars to go automatically to the Medi-Cal program, which provides health care to low and moderate income Californians. So it's, it puts a new rule in there. I want to ask you quickly about the state, this thing called a state mandate. Uh, what are they and how do they impact the state budget process? So state mandates are essentially requirements from the state that local governments perform certain activities. Um, decades ago, and, and maybe not so long ago, the state would tell locals that it needed to do certain things and it wouldn't pay for them. Um, the locals didn't like that, and they got voters to pass uh, a couple of initiatives that tightened up the rules. So now, essentially, um, the state legislature, if, if it wants local governments to do something, it has to pay for it. Okay. Um, if they're not going to pay for it, they have to suspend the mandate. Okay, so we'll end with this last question. Overall, uh, what is the impact of these voter initiatives and propositions on the state budget process? How would you overall, what would your impression be? Well, it's essentially a way that the voters are setting priorities uh, for their elected officials in Sacramento. So the voters have said, if we, as we just talked about, that they want to be certain that a good share of the state budget goes to our public schools and community colleges every year. They've said they want to see a lot of money set aside in a rainy day reserve. So um, it doesn't completely tie the hands of our legislators and our governor. But it does um, impose some requirements on them that they have to follow um, every year when they build the budget. Follow the money. If you really want to yeah. know what the priorities are for the, for the state citizens or the governor or the legislature, follow the money. It's all in the budget. Well, I want to thank our guest, the Director of Research at the California Budget and Policy Center, Scott Graves. If you also want to stay up with state and local politics, you can sign up for our daily e-newsletter, The Maddie Daily, by going onto our website at maddieinstitute.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. This is Mark Kepler for The Maddie Report. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Matter Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Matty Report. 
Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.